0: So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey, it's Heather. And I want to remind you about our very special tours to the UK. In 2017, we'll be doing tours focusing on the Evensong experience. The Evensong service comes from Cranmer's Book of Common Prayer from the mid-16th century, It's been dubbed the atheist's favorite service because it requires so little and it gives so much. It's simply divine choral music sung in some of the most historic chapels, abbeys and cathedrals in England. We'll be spending 10 days visiting places like Cambridge, Oxford, Bath, the Cotswolds, Winchester and Windsor with walking tours, free time to explore and then gathering back each afternoon for the Evensong service if you choose to attend. It will be 10 days of beautiful countryside, historic cities and villages, and so, so much music. I invite you to go to englandcast.com slash tours for full itinerary and pricing information. Again, englandcast, E-N-G-L-A-N-D-C-A-S-T, englandcast.com slash tours. Thanks so much, and now to the show. So in 2011, I met Susie Digby via Twitter, and have been honored and privileged to have been part of a few of her many projects since then, including last year's launch of the Golden Bridge Choir, where I was a volunteer usher. The Golden Bridge brings together the choral traditions of Renaissance England, with the current flowering of choral music happening in California, and her choir is performing for the second year next Saturday, the 19th of September, at All Saints Episcopal Church, 504 North Camden Drive, in Beverly Hills. It's the 19th of September at 8 o'clock PM in Beverly Hills. For more details on that, go to goldenbridgechoir.org. That's goldenbridgechoir, all one word, goldenbridgechoir.org. So we recently Skyped so that she could tell me more about the music of the 16th century, as well as what she loves about the contemporary choral music scene and the similarities between Elizabethan England and what's happening now in California. So I really need to apologize in advance. We did this at 11 o'clock PM Spain time, where I am. And we live near a railway railway track where these two trains pass by each evening. One normally comes around 10.30 and the other normally comes around 11.30. But for some reason, one came exactly when I started talking to Susie at 11. So for the first few minutes, you hear a really loud train in the background, as well as me trying to walk around and find a better spot, which just doesn't exist. And so I really, really apologize for the sound in like the first three minutes. Bear with it though, because it's totally worth it to get to the good stuff after the first three minutes. And it's really only three minutes. It's not that long. So to introduce Susie, Susie Digby, Lady Eatwell, OBE, Officer of the British Empire, is an internationally renowned choral conductor and music educator. She founded and runs five influential national arts and education organizations, the Voices Foundation, the UK's leading primary music education charity, the Voce Chamber Choir, one of London's finest young chamber choirs, Vocal Futures, which nurtures young audiences for classical music, Singing for Success, which is leadership and accelerated learning for corporates, and the London Youth Choir, a pyramid of five choirs, 8 to 22, serving all of London's 33 boroughs and multi-communities. 2015 sees also the launch of her professional vocal consort, Aura, which commissions new choral works as reflections of old masterworks. Aura is London-based with residencies in Sao Paulo and Hong Kong. Susie is a visiting professor at the University of Southern California, Choral Conducting masters, masters in Arts Leadership. As a conductor, Susie's 2011 debut with the Orchestra of the Age of Enlightenment, Vocal Futures' Bach St. Matthew Passion, was met with outstanding critical acclaim, choral wizard, and the mother of all music, the Telegraph called her. In 2015-16, she will be working with the London Mozart Players and Britain Sinfonia. Susie is trustee of music in country churches for His Royal Highness the Prince of Wales, among other music and education charities. She is past president of the Incorporated Society of Musicians, the UK National Classical Musicians Union, and was acting music director of Queen's College, where she founded and runs the Queen's Choral Conducting Program, University of Cambridge. Amongst many TV appearances, she was a judge on BBC One's hit show Last Choir Standing with over 7 million viewers, and Susie annually conducts 2,000 voices in the Royal Albert Hall Scratch Youth Messiah. So we started out with her telling me how she conceived the idea for the Golden Bridge. Again, please bear with me through the train, and I'm so sorry. It is at most two minutes. I promise it's worth it. Well, the Golden Bridge project is
1: professional group of singers who come from various top choirs in Los Angeles. And the purpose is really to bring together the great Renaissance masterpieces of 500 years ago from England and indeed around Great Britain with contemporary Californian great choral masterpieces. So it's really this twinning that I'm very interested in. My thesis is that We, in England, particularly, had a a golden age um, under the Tudors, um, particularly Elizabeth I. We've never really gained our preeminence back since then because the the baton really then went to Italy and Germany, and and Germany didn't exist, but onto the continent. And um, we've had the odd glimmer with Purcell and Britain, but we've never really had those golden days of... um, choral inventiveness that we had back then, and now it seems that we're regaining that preeminence, but it's a a global trend of really outstanding choral music being written, and California is one of the very important centres of that, so to twin the uh, greatest music from both eras has been a very, very interesting project.
0: And how did you get the idea for it?
1: Well, I got the idea because I've been, I've been commissioning a lot of work. It dawns on me that now is a sort of renaissance of beautiful music that's being written by choral composers, that audiences love, that singers really rate highly, that critics rate highly. And so um, for years, really, it's been difficult to write a tune, I suppose, <laughs> since um, experimental music became fashionable. And now it's, it's really back in the mainstream. And so that was one of the things. And, and of course, with Morten Laridson as one of the great choral composers of today, being at the center of my work here in Los Angeles, it seemed I, I was able to really investigate that and start um, looking at uh, Californian composers. California is the same size as England, pretty much, so it's, a, it's an interesting comparison in terms of the, of the output in this very special area.
0: So, I would love if you could share with me a little bit about just kind of an overview of music in the 16th century and this kind of flowering and, and renaissance that you had spoken about under the Tudors and Elizabeth, the Golden Age, and um, just talk to me a little bit about that.
1: Yes, of course. So um, we really had, more than any other time in history, a very symbiotic relationship with um, the monarchs in England at that time. So um, we had this tussle between Catholicism and Protestantism going on through that entire, entire era. And then with Queen Elizabeth I, we had this prolonged period of stability but also where the Catholics were under persecution Mm. and it was at that time that a lot of the court composers and the composers for the monarch's chapel royal were composing their greatest works. I think one of the most interesting examples of that is William Byrd because although he was a confirmed Catholic and in fact became increasingly more so, in an in, in intensely Catholic, with intense Catholic beliefs, um, he had to write for Protestant monarchs. And much of his music, as he grew older, became quite subversive. Um, and that actually was his greatest music, the music that he wrote for the recusant Catholic communities. So often he would visit, literally in the dead of night, he would visit Catholic homes and um, they would go into a room and sit around a table and perform this music that he had written specifically for them. Mm. Um, and as, his, as this progressed, there were ever more um, subversive messages coming through the text, messages to the Pope, um, and references to the persecuted minority and the lying tongues mm. and, um, and all this. And of course, it was a very dangerous time. William Byrd himself was under house arrest, and um, he really styled himself a sort of house composer for the Catholic community. And um, that produced this canon of work, which was just um, extraordinary. And because he also um, was given publishing rights, he was able to publish this music, and he really, although it was not intended for an audience at the time, he very much intended it for the good years that he was hoping for ahead, when the Catholics would be resurgent and this music would be, become um, mainstream. So so it was for this sort of double function for his own legacy as a musician, but also to keep the Catholic fires burning. Um, so you can imagine just how how deep he dug down to find this creative genius, and and these are his greatest works. Of course, Talis, both Talus and Bird lived a long time, so they lived through several monarchs, and um, it it, it was a real seesaw at that time. I mean, one can hardly imagine how difficult it was, Um, and many executions um, of of Catholics happening all the time. Um, And so music has never really been more entwined with, political history, of course, with Henry VIII, his motivations being political, and um, uh, with the monarchy, and with the emergence later of the, of, uh, the middle classes, and then go, you know, going into the Baroque era, which of mm-hmm. course um, brought a very, very different um, style and function of music.
0: Yeah. Now, I I just have um, a follow up question on Bird. Didn't he outlived Elizabeth? Didn't he? What happened to him under James? Wasn't the idea that James was going to be a little bit more tolerant? But then with the Gunpowder Plot, that all went to to smithereens. And did anything yes. happen to him then? In fact,
1: um, um, one of my ancestors was part of the Gunpowder powder Plot and was. Hung, drawn, and quartered for oh, his part in it, oh, Everard no.
0: Digby. Oh no! Um,
1: but um, no, bird bird never saw that. Saw that the the, the the resurgence of Catholicism really, um, and uh, so it was. You know, it, it the, these works became increasingly intense, mm. and they they you know that. He was very unusual, actually, he and Talis, to live as long as they did. Yeah. Um, but, yes, it was very, very much um, still in the domain of the recusant Catholics. Yeah. And also what's very interesting, it, was, it would have been the first time that women would have sung because very often it was the woman of the household in these recusant family homes, Catholic homes, that would have sung yeah. uh, the top line. If not, they might have found uh, a, a vial or an instrument uh, to, to play the top line. But yes. that would have been the first time that women would have sung.
0: And that was like Bird's Masses would have been an example of something that he wrote for the recusant households, right? Because you yes, I mean, there
1: ideas. are there are dozens and dozens of works um, uh, uh, in Felix Ago, which um, we perform part of the last Golden Bridge concert. Was based on text by Savonarola that um, had been written a hundred years previously about um, after he had recanted, he was under torture and just before he was burnt in public, um, and these words uh, of, of the the desperate um, agony of recanting your faith, um, but trusting in God uh, um, mm-hmm. were so. Powerfully set by Byrd and in Felix Ego. And I've actually um, commissioned uh, Eric Eisenwalds to write, and we've recorded for my group Aura in England um, a reflection of it, which is absolutely stunning mm. and brings seems to bring out the, um, the greatest music that Eric Eisenwaltz has written as well in the 21st century. So this text. Um, And its themes, and the themes of holding your faith in an era of of dangerous persecution, seems to really uh, travel through time without any diminishing of of power. But Felix Ego was part of this vast, vast canon of of works that uh, William Byrd produced, of which the masses are a a small part.
0: Right, okay. So how did you choose the music? How do you choose this pairing of the early music with the contemporary?
1: Well, for this concert coming up on the 19th, um, I have commissioned um, two new works, and we're performing a a third brand new work um, as reflections, direct reflections of English music. So uh, I'm very excited about Stephen Hartke's new reflection on uh, Wilkes, O Lord Arise. And um, so I asked Stephen Hartke um, uh, to choose a piece of English Renaissance music on which to write a reflection. So he chose the piece mm. of Wilkes because it's something he, was, he grew up with. He sang it as a, as a choir boy. And um, he actually, interestingly, he chose to base the whole piece on one chord. Mm. Wilkes was brilliant at, at second to none really at the use of cross relations so um, it's really the, the advent of the blues note uh, and um, it's it's used very very powerfully um, to highlight certain moments in the text mm-hmm. so he's taken one of these extraordinary chords and based the entire piece around it and um, it's a stunning piece we've had one rehearsal of it and it's it's not easy but it's it's magnificent mm. um then i then um bill cunliffe and of course stephen Huck is is the recipient of multi grammy awards as well on the jazz side we also have another recipient of grammy awards and that's bill cunliffe who's a jazz musician and he's written a jazz arrangement but he he chose um a folk song he chose a an Irish folk song She Moves Through the Fair which um, many of your listeners I'm sure will know is the most haunting and beautiful Irish folk song and he's written that with um, our first accompaniment normally all our music is a, is a cappella and he's coming himself to play so we have this new dimension of jazz now in terms mm. of the other pairings um, it's somewhat arbitrary um, in that um, I don't, I don't find a, a Californian piece that um, particularly matches the text of the, the, re, the English Renaissance piece, mm-hmm. but more to provide an artistic um, sort of palette for the audience, so they get, they get a real richness of, um, uh, in terms of the variety of compositional styles and the beauty of the choral language both then and now, so bridging mm. these two golden e- e- eras. Mm.
0: So, for listeners who maybe aren't so familiar with choral music and with early music, um, I would love to know kind of what what's available to people in this mu- for this music. Like, why listen to it? What does it offer to modern ears now? Um, kind of what's what's the point? Well, that's a
1: very interesting question, because I believe all great art sounds new uh, or, or looks new, if you look at um, visual painting. Um, you know, if it was brilliant and radical at the time, it will seem brilliant and radical now. It, it doesn't seem, there doesn't seem to be the, it, to me anyway, the notion of progress as such and that, you know, genius doesn't get better. As we evolve as a species, genius is genius. And if you listen to a piece of bird now, um, a great bird or great talis, for example, the forty-part sperminalium, it just blows you away. Uh, in much the same way, I imagine it blew its own audiences away. Mm-hmm. So, um, or, or its own worshippers. Or the, or the idea of an audience is rather a, a modern concept. Um, and so. Um, interestingly, now there seems to be a fashion in America um, for English Tudor music. I've noticed a lot of programming in the major concert halls, in Carnegie Hall and Disney Hall and Los Angeles, of of Renaissance choral music, and um, so it seems to be, um, you know, re- regaining or in- increasing its popularity. It's always been popular since the sort of the pioneers of the recording industry, groups such as Talis Scholars in England, um, uh, it's 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 gradually grown and grown and grown. And if you listen to the main classical st- radio stations, um, a, a lot of airtime is given to this music. It's um, at its most contemplative and slow moving and beautiful. It's it's sublime. It puts you in a state of mind of, of of, um, I suppose, peace and contemplation, um, and also just a sort of sense that you're basking in this eternal beauty. And of course, it's it's pre-tonality as such, so it's it's sort of modal, but finding its way into tonality, and it has foreshadowings of tonal language that we recognise today, but it's still. It's still very forward-looking and very, very modern in its own way. In terms of the more upbeat music, such as Sing Joyfully by Bird, for example, it, it's exhilarating. These composers were so skilled at um, communicating the real essence of the text. I don't think it's been matched since. I can't think of com- any composers who really have really been able to match that. So I don't think the great mm-hmm. music dates. I'd be very surprised if people who investigated this music weren't absolutely um, spitten by it in due course once they'd given it a chance. Particularly if you if you really stick yep. to the to the high quality stuff, the, the, mm-hmm. the really you know the the real masterpieces, and they happen they tend to be the most recorded.
0: Sure. How how did you personally get? uh involved in like how what was your introduction to this kind of music
1: singing it singing it from the age of nine in churches and that that was such a um a i mean really all my musicianship stems from that Mm -hmm. um and it's just part of you know it's in my blood um and you know i mean i i sang the the bird masses as i say from the age of nine the, the great Talis, the great Byrd, the great Tompkins, Wilkes, Morley Madrigals. Um, you know, the, the, there's this whole secular body of work from that age as well, the madrigals. Sure. Um, in fact, we're doing one this year in the Golden Bridge concert, we're doing one of Morden Laridson's uh, madrigals that he wrote when he was 27, oh. based on the English madrigal. Um, And they're absolutely beautiful and they're secular. So, you know, you've got the sacred music, but you've also got this wonderful secular music. And it was a very intense flowering um, uh, in in just around the turn of the century, the early 1600s. It came across from Italy in a um, wonderful collection in two volumes called Musica Transalpina, which were Italian madrigals, but in English, translated to English, and then that you just burst onto the scene. Every composer in England started writing magicals, and it only lasted a few years, perhaps 30 years, less than the Rolling Stones have lasted, for example, (laughs) and then it was gone. Um, But it did produce some wonderful little masterpieces, and they're all secular. So for people who like secular music um, and like to include secular music, uh, in their programs, the madrigals, the English madrigals are perfect. But, but the other um, way to answer your question is that if you are in a choir or you direct a choir, this music is absolutely essential, I think. Um, it's the best way for choirs to learn line. Um, this is, you know, all, all Renaissance uh, music, really, secular and sacred, uh, to you know, it was the, the, the music was so beautifully written on the breath. Mm-hmm. To learn how to listen, because all the parts are of equal importance, so you don't just have a tune and then harmonize by the other parts. It's very, um, you know, polyphony is all about um, the equal status of all the voices. Um, and so to develop musicianship and listening skills and ear and good singing technique, there is absolutely nothing like the, the, the Renaissance a cappella
0: music. Mm-hmm. So that you, you were talking about the madrigals, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the average person's experience of music in the 16th, early 17th centuries, because all of the, um, the sacred music, I'm assuming, would have been in chapels and would have been, you know, like the Chapel Royal and, and places that that had those sorts of resources available to them, which after Henry VIII and Cromwell, I would think were fewer. So what kind of access would ordinary people have had to music and would it have been like the madrigals and things with the growing theatrical, you know, movement and, and talk a little bit about that, I guess.
1: Exactly. Well, that's very interesting. So of course you'd have liturgical music, you'd have music that you'd experience in church, you had this recusant Catholic music, that um, uh, it, that category that we've already discussed. Um, then you, the madrigal really was for um, the emerging middle class. You'd sit round a table, and it would be one voice per part, and you'd read it, and you'd have a you'd have a fun evening, um, and you would just make music with these madrigals. And um, so there would, be, there would be no concept of a concert or anything like that. They were really for people to sing mm-hmm. and enjoy. And there was, I mean, this was a time of Shakespeare. Um, and, you know, and the, 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 the form of the sonnet, for example, was a perfect form to set in magical style. So, so that was really what it was all about. It was about known poetry. Being set to music and then to be enjoyed um, within one's home, and um, so you know, and then you had the music of the streets. You know, you had the, uh, a, a different type of music, but also very important and folk music, which would have been known to the, to a much broader spectrum um, of of the public. But people were music makers, you know, um, all the way through all the way through society. Uh, at At some level or, or another
0: sure and i I'm guessing too, with the everything kind of converged to with the music coming to be able to have copies of that um printed copies so that yep. the average so, people could have access to being able to have it in their homes um versus, exactly yeah.
1: the music was being printed um and so so that made it suddenly available to everybody and to transport as well. And so there was a huge interflow between Italy and England. We had Italian composers coming to work in the Elizabethan court. Um, London was very wealthy and becoming wealthier. By the time of Handel, it was the wealthiest city in the world. So a lot of composers came to work in in London and England in general. Um, and you had this interflow of culture. So a lot of Shakespeare's plays, for example, were written were based in Italy. Mm-hmm. Romeo and Juliet, Twelfth Night, um, all these plays uh, that the had themes.
0: Would that have been like after the Armada and, and every? I mean, was wasn't there this whole fear of the Catholic conspiracy of, against Elizabeth and and fear of of that until after? I don't know. I'm, I'm babbling. Yes. There.
1: Well, well, there was, but and, and interestingly enough, but I mean, Elizabeth's reign was very stable. Okay. I think, compared to what had gone before, sure. okay. although, you know, she was executing a lot of Catholics. I mean, she, she executed more people than Bloody Mary did, although, of course, she lived a lot longer.
0: And torture what, was yeah. used at a greater rate than any other time in, in his, English history at that time too, with under Walsingham.
1: Exactly. But uh, we were ju- I was looking at a madrigal today, actually, by Wheels, which is called The Andalusian Merchant which is about um, a merchant that travels to Spain and then brings back all this stuff. Mm. And this stuff would have come to England for the first time um, ever. Cochineal and fogo and all these strange things, china dishes, they're all referred to in the mag- magicals. Yeah. And when it comes to how strangely fogo burns, it's a lovely chromatic bit. Oh, wow. And um, so, so there was this great time of discovery um, of things coming from the, 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 other, the other parts of the world. And um, so and this is all reflected in, in the Madrigals. The Madrigals, the theme of the Madrigals is about exploration, it's about love, it's about sex, um, it's about smoking, it's about um, war, um, seasons, all sorts of topical things subjects. Sure. Um, and of course, nobody painted words, nobody was able to um, bring the, these words to life uh, uh, as, as the um, English magicals, magicalists were.
0: Sure. Excellent. Um, so I've been asking you a lot of questions about the history side of it. Um, what else would you like to share about the contemporary piece of the Golden Bridge Project?
1: Right. Well, we have a, a wonderful piece by Matthew Brown, um, an, a set, his setting of A Manu Mysterium*, which is really, really stunning. And um, uh, so we've we've got a range of composers, from very young to to more mature, um, and a range of styles. The heart key piece is is challenging. It's modern. It's um, but but incredibly listening listenable. The piece of Hartke we did last year, which is fiendishly difficult, it's in, um, I think it goes into 19 parts, and uh, was very, very hard to learn, but the audience loved it. Um, And and a lot of the audience weren't choral experts, you know. So uh, Hartke has this ability to write extremely technically and musically challenging music, which isn't in any particular... Neo tonality or anything like that, but really, really communicates to an audience, even if it 's not a, a, a particularly knowledgeable audience of that spe- of specifically choral music, mm-hmm. and his piece this year is is equally um, accessible and yet very, very challenging and then of course you have the Laridson music and the Matthew Brown music, which is more, if you like, um, tonal. In the more conventional sense, with this new tonal language that's emerged in the last 20 years or so, uh, which is very beautiful, very accessible, and so really, and then you have the jazz. So you have um, in the in the contemporary Californian canon, you you know we really have um, a, a broad spectrum, a really exciting and broad spectrum. So, um, Doctor. Strimple is uh, my colleague at USC Thornton School. Mm -hmm. And um, he's had a sort of a a flourish of activity in terms of his composing recently. Apparently unlocked by my commissioning him to do a a Hebrew piece, which um, combines um, Hebrew text with um, an English psalm.
0: Mm. And
1: I'm doing a multi-faith program with the London Youth Choir. And mm. he wrote this for me, and suddenly it unlocked a stream of creativity. And he produced out of the blue um, uh, an anthem uh, dedicated to my husband, to Lord well oh, yeah. And uh, it is an absolute masterpiece. It's Roarte Cheli. It's um, absolutely beautiful. And so we broke it in at the rehearsal last week. And it, it, the, the choir loved it. And I, mm. I think it might be the highlight of the program in many ways.
0: Wow. Thank you so much. You're just so lovely. Thank
1: you. <laughs> yes, thank you. And also, it might be worth um, noting that all this contemporary music, um, the contemporary music that I'm commissioning in, in England, uh, is under the reign of Elizabeth II, Right. Uh, the second golden era. The first golden era was under Elizabeth I, and she's about as of tomorrow, the ninth, right. to be the longest reigning monarch in history. Yes, in the history of, the, of Great Britain. So that's yeah. kind of significant, I think.
0: Uh, no, that definitely is. Thank you for sharing so much of your time and your knowledge. I know you've got a lot going on, so I, I really appreciate you taking the it time. It couldn't
1: be a greater pleasure, ever <laughs> <laughs> Thank
0: you again. Thank you so much to Susie Digby
1: Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party
0: started. And please, if you're in Los Angeles, go to her concert. If you can drive, go to her concert um, next Saturday, the 19th of September 2015 at All Saints Episcopal Church, 504 North Camden Drive in Beverly Hills, California. And you can also go to goldenbridgechoir.org, all one word, goldenbridgechoir.org for more information. Thank you so much. And I will be talking with you again soon.